Hello and welcome to JLGB Virtual We Are Live. As part of JLGB's recent adjustments to the coronavirus lockdown, we have been helping parents and young people stay entertained and active all online. In order to adapt our delivery to the government restrictions, on the 23rd of March, we launched JLGB Virtual, which runs every Monday to Thursday evening. This is our way of ensuring that we can continue to delight, inform and entertain young people so that they can have some fun, learn new skills and make a difference. Sessions include skills like magic, upcycling and coding. Physical activities and the focus of this podcast series, interviews, with expert speakers from a range of backgrounds, including famous actors, social entrepreneurs, government ministers and many more. These interviews are run by young people like myself, so if you have any questions or want to get involved, please reach out to us on any social media platform. Just look for JLGBHQ and message us. We have so many exciting guests for you to listen to, and we hope you'll join us live very soon. For now though, join us through our catalogue of guests. Today's guest is the former Israeli ambassador to the UK, Mark Regev. Sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy. It's time to introduce our very special guest for the night, His Excellency, Ambassador Mark Regev. With over 25 years of experience in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, His Excellency Mark Regev has played a key role representing the State of Israel. As the Prime Minister's advisor and international spokesperson for eight years, Ambassador Regev established himself as one of Israel's most recognised voices across the English-speaking world. Ambassador Regev rose through the ranks of Israel's diplomatic corps, serving as vice consul in Hong Kong and then as first secretary in Beijing. Ambassador Regev went on to serve as councillor in Washington and then as the spokesperson for the foreign ministry in Jerusalem. The ambassador graduated from the University of Melbourne with a BA in political science and modern history. He holds a master's in political science from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, as well as a master of science in management from Boston University. Before joining Israel's foreign service, he lectured on international relations and strategy at the Israel Defense Forces Staff College. Since 2015, the ambassador has been the ambassador of Israel to the Court of St. James and has become an extremely formidable figure in the UK Jewish community. With plans to move on in the summer, we are delighted that he has taken the time to be with us this evening to talk about his time as ambassador and what life is currently like in Israel. Welcome, Ambassador. How are you and what have you been doing to keep yourself positive during lockdown? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Guy. It is uh, uh, much, much appreciated. It's the first time I think I'm speaking uh, uh, to you guys, and it's a pleasure and an honor. I started my career in public service in a Jewish, Jewish youth organization. It got me off to a good start, and I know all of you who are part of, 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 of this organization. Uh, uh, you can be proud of yourselves for being part of it, and I'm sure it helped equip you, like my experience in a Jewish youth organization, helped me to get where I am. So I'm really happy to be with you. How do I keep myself busy? Well, the truth is, it, it can be difficult because uh, uh, coronavirus means we have to keep the strict social distancing rules. And ambassadors, what do we do? We meet people, we go to meetings, we shake hands, we go to events, we give lectures. And it's all that much, much more difficult. Uh, uh, 
when you have to keep social distancing. A lot of what we do becomes impossible. So like you, I'm doing a lot of things now online. I'm doing a lot of Zoom meetings like this, working the phones, writing letters, doing things normally uh, uh, that I wouldn't be doing as much of because of the need for social distancing. Well, even still, we are very pleased to have you on our Gel3 virtual program tonight. And we've been boosting positivity and keeping children and their families active and healthy for seven weeks now since lockdown with the help of a special guest helping us each evening. So this must be an extremely busy time for you, as you've said, you've got all these meetings. So why was it important for you to join us this evening? Because first of all, I think it's important that I support what you're doing. I mean, ultimately I know the important role you play in the Jewish community here in the United Kingdom. I know how many people you bring every year. This year we don't count, yes, because of this disease and there wasn't Israel tour. But every year you bring lots of young people to Israel to see, to see the Jewish state. And, and it's my way, first of all, of saying thank you for what you do as an organization every year. And it's also a way for me to answer your questions because often people have questions about Israel or about what ambassadors do, and I'm very happy to do that. Now, especially if you want me to be upbeat and to keep everyone positive during this difficult time of people being by themselves at home and so forth, I can be upbeat. I can help you do that. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what we can be upbeat about. Do you know that in Israel, we've done very well with coronavirus. We've kept our fatality rate very, very low. Now, to do that, we've been very strict on things like social distancing. But if you compare Israel to a lot of other European countries, countries like Italy, France, Germany, even the United Kingdom, we've kept our death rate in Israel very, very low. Now, of course, everyone who dies, it's a tragedy. But as a country, the way Israel has dealt with coronavirus, many people are looking at us, many people see us as a success story. And that's a good thing. It's certainly a good thing. I don't think you'll get much argument from anyone here. Um, is it, and it's a fantastic thing. It's yet another fantastic example of Israel once again proving itself as a country. So if I could just redirect slightly towards JLGB, we're all about acts of da daily acts of kindness here on JLGB Virtual, as Georgie has just demonstrated. And so we always ask our guests what they've been doing to help others. So in your role as ambassador, your daily life affects millions. But is there any acts of kindness that you've personally been doing to help someone in need during this pandemic? So the first thing I have a responsibility as the ambassador is to make sure that all my embassy staff are safe and healthy. That's my first responsibility. I have about 50 people who work at the Embassy of Israel in London. And once again, making sure that everyone is safe. And so we've made a rule that people are working from home, those who can. And those who come into work, we prefer they don't come in on public transport. We've even organized a shuttle service. So people who, who, who don't have a vehicle and they normally would come by public transport. And we've enforced strict social distancing for those who do come into work. Uh, we made a decision early on. I don't know if it's right or wrong. You tell me what you think, Guy. But we said we will follow all the instructions by the governments. But we have two governments. We're in the United Kingdom. So there's the UK government, but there's also we're an Israeli institution. So there's the Israeli government. So we said we will keep all the government rules. And if there's a difference between the two, if the rules coming out of Jerusalem are a bit different from the rules coming out of London, we'll always go with who is more severe, right? We'll always err on the side of caution. And so I'm happy to tell you that 
and this we've been successful. I had one case of one of my staff had, had symptoms and uh, luckily because we isolated, we, that didn't spread and she's now fine and back at work. And so that was my first responsibility. My second responsibility was the Israeli community here in the United Kingdom because as, um, as the Israeli embassy, we also look after all our Israeli citizens here. And so for a lot of that was facilitating flights to people who wanted to go back to Israel because once it got a bit, um, you know, it, it got a bit serious here. So there's no reason to be a tourist in Britain when everything's closing down, yes? So we facilitated, we helped Israelis who wanted to get back to Israel. There were problems with the flights, to be frank. Do you know, uh, before this crisis started, uh, Guy, there were something like 12 flights a day between London and, and, uh, and Tel Aviv. There's also, there was flights also, as you know, from up north, from Manchester and so forth. We had, I think we have something like six carriers on the Israel-UK route. They're the two national carriers, El Al, the Israeli National Airline and British, British Airways. Then you had uh, the budget carriers, uh, is Wizz Air and, and EasyJet. They're all on the route, yes? Uh, and recently Virgin uh, Atlantic also joined the route. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a full route and a lot of activity, but because of this crisis, a lot of the flights were canceled, a lot of the airlines stopped running the route. And so we had to help facilitate Israelis who wanted to go back home to go back home. And so that's another thing that we had to do to help, to help, to help our, our citizens. And thirdly, during this crisis, we have to make sure that the relationship between Britain and Israel is in a good place, because that's what embassies do. We're in charge of the, the relationship between the two countries. So I can tell you that about three, four weeks ago, when Prime Minister Johnson was in hospital and not in a good way, his deputy, the, the man who was sitting in for him, uh, Dominic Raab, the foreign secretary, had a phone conversation with Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel. And that conversation, you know, often when the leaders of Britain and Israel get together, they can discuss all sorts of interesting things from the peace process to what's going on in Syria, to the Iranian nuclear issue, yes. I can tell you, they had a conversation and the whole conversation was about coronavirus. And what basically came down is this, what can Israel do to help Britain? And what can Britain do to help Israel? Because there's some things you're good at and other things that we're good at. And when we cooperate and we're friendly countries, we're allies, we're partners. So we are also helping each other on that issue too. Is it, as, that sounds very, and it all sounds very interesting and very enlightening into the whole process between international relations. And obviously Israel for a long time has found itself as a country, it's very important for it to have strong alliances and vice versa. And we're definitely going to touch on that later on. But if we could talk specifically about, well, in first, I'd like to just ask a very brief question to kind of characterize this. When you were talking about the movements of the large movements of Israeli citizens, roughly how many people were you moving? So what happened was you have usually something maybe 30 or 40,000 Israelis in Britain. I mean, Britain's a very popular tourist destination yes. for Israelis. A lot of Israelis like coming to London, especially in the Israeli summer when it's, when it's very hot in Israel. Yeah, they, they love to yeah. come here. They're specifically like a, a lot of Israelis like going to Scotland in the summer because there it's nice and cool and mild. I'm not sure they get to Birmingham where you are, but I'm sure some do. I'm sure some do. Some get lost. <laughs> but no. Uh, 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 and so... Obviously, to help tourists, especially when the hotels were closing and people were stuck, to help them get back to Israel. And even I noticed, uh, which is a thing I think it's common to a lot of people, 
when the crisis started, even Israelis who were living here, yes, a lot of them decided they wanted to go home because I think when these things happen, people feel safer when they're at home. I think that's a natural thing. And yeah. so we were facilitating a lot of Israelis to, to return home. That is before we knew the fact that Israel actually, it's probably statistically, yeah, probably safer to be in Israel because we've <laughs> managed to keep our, our you know, our, our infection rate relatively low compared to some other countries. So if we can focus on you personally for a bit. Um, so your father was a Holocaust survivor and are you happy to share his story and specifically kind of how his experiences have shaped your thinking and your identity? Yeah, I can do that if you'd like. My father was born in a city in Germany called Magdeburg, not a big city, a smaller city, in 1931. And he used to joke with us that it was the wrong uh, place and the wrong time to be born a Jew because he was born there just as Hitler was coming to power, yes? Now the family tried to get out, but they waited too long and they ended up being stuck in, um, stuck in Germany for the war. And obviously it was very difficult for them. Uh, my grandfather was a slave laborer uh, doing terrible, terrible work in awful conditions. And the family were uh, in a very precarious, a very difficult and very dangerous situation. And what saved them was obviously a bit of luck, but also you should know the Royal Air Force. Because what happened is one night, your, the Royal Air Force came over Magdeburg, Germany, and they bombed the city as part of the Allied bombing campaign. And there was smoke and, and, and uh, chaos and, and people were, were, were suffering the effects of the bombing. And literally, my father told us the story, they, the, the Nazis forced the Jews to wear this big yellow star, which was to identify them, yes? They literally, in the smoke and the confusion of the Allied uh, bombing attack, they ripped off their Jewish stars and they fled to the countryside where they were in hiding until the end of the war, until liberation. So in many ways, me coming here to, to Britain, it's like closing a circle because we say the British saved the family in the Second World War, right? Had they stayed in Magdeburg until the very end, the, the Nazis were trying to you know, get as many Jews as they could. It was almost as if they knew their time was running out. So that was, that's part of my family experience. Why did that turn to me you know, how did that affect me? I think being the, the son of a Holocaust survivor or the child of a Holocaust survivor does affect you. It could not, not affect you, yes, it must affect you. Um, there's even books written, uh, psychological books about the, the effect of the Holocaust on the second generation. And you're not supposed to psychoanalyze yourself, it's against the rules, yes, but I, I do know that that's affected. I think it, look, the idea that the Jewish people should have their own country, that they should be free, that they should have the ability to defend themselves, yes? I believe that very, very uh, passionately. And maybe that comes from the powerlessness, the lack of power that my, my father's generation had, yes? I mean, there are stories of, of Jewish leaders going to, to, the, to the, the leaders of the allied countries in the Second World War, going to Churchill and Roosevelt, to the Russians and saying, please bomb the camps, yes, stop this, stop this Holocaust. And they had to beg for help and some of the countries gave help and often they didn't because they were busy on other priorities. For me, that the idea that the Jewish people should be free and sovereign, yes, and we can protect ourselves, that's something I believe in very profoundly and I've got no doubt that 
the, the experience of my father, yes, of Jews being persecuted and, 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 and not being able to defend themselves was part of me becoming a very strong Zionist. That is a fantastic story, and it's a very personal story. And it, as in suddenly, and it does appear to be, even if it may have been a subconscious thing, it does appear to have been one of the, one of the reasons why you're such an effective ambassador for the British, if you have that familial link to them. When talking about uh, obviously the Holocaust, so you took part in the online national Yom HaShoah commemoration, organised by our very own JLGB CEO Neil Martin. So what was it like being part of and watching a virtual remembrance ceremony? And do you think that this is the future? So it was strange for me because since arriving in the United Kingdom in 2016, every year I've gone to the ceremony and you meet people and you meet the survivors and you shake hands. And, and it was strange. It's, sort of, it's not the same doing it uh, online. Yes, it's not the same because you don't have the same... You don't touch the flesh. You don't feel the people in the same way. It's a new experience to do it uh, to do it online, to do it through Zoom or something like that. I can say this: that the message is the same message. Yes, the message is the same message, and that is, of course, I always ask. The, uh, I'll give an example. Israel, as you know, got its independence in 1948, and uh, that was just after the Second World War. And the question I always ask, and I know my father used to ask, is if, is if Israel would have got its independence just 10 years earlier, in 1938 instead of 1948. Now, in historic terms, 10 years is nothing. What's 10 years? Maybe for younger people, 10 years is their, their, half of their whole lives, yes? But, but in, the, in the life of nations, 10 years is nothing. 10 years is a drop in the bucket. If Israel would have been free and sovereign in 1938 instead of 1948, just 10 years earlier, just a decade earlier, how many people could we have saved? And I think that's a message people need to remember because the Jews were trapped in Europe. They knew what was coming more or less. They knew that Hitler was gonna be a problem, a big problem. They knew that he, he, he had evil designs on the Jews and the Jews wanted to get out. And families like my family, they were trapped. There was no one who would take them in. They tried to get out and they couldn't. Had we had a Jewish country, a Jewish state, had we had Israel who would have uh, uh, would accepted everybody, I'm not saying we could have saved the entire six million, but I have no doubt that we could have saved many, many, many people. I think, and I think that is the way you put it. It's such a strong argument behind well, the whole principle of modern Zionism. So thank you for that. If we can move on to something maybe a bit less, uh, potentially a bit less heavy, though it depends on your answers. Uh, you were born in Australia. So could you tell us about your early childhood there and why you made the move to Israel? So my parents, my mother was born in Australia. She was the child of Polish Jewish immigrants who left Poland in the 1920s. Very lucky for them, because if they hadn't have left, we know what happened, unfortunately, to most of the Polish Jews. My father's family came to Australia after the war. You know, Australia is the other side of the planet. Yes, you really can't find a place that's further away than Australia. And there was a phenomenon amongst Jews after the Second World War, let's get as far away from Europe as we can, yes? Because Europe was the, the scene of the, the, terrible, the terrible destruction, the, the Holocaust. 
And so my family, my father's family uh, emigrated to Australia. My mother grew up in Melbourne. My father grew up in Sydney. And they met at a Jewish youth camp, maybe like some of the camps that you do today. And they fell in love. My father said it was love at first sight. And they went to live in Israel together. They went to a kibbutz. Uh, for those of your members who don't know what a kibbutz is, a kibbutz is like a socialistic collective farm. But after a year or two on the kibbutz, they decided it was time to go back to Australia. And that's why I was born in Australia. I was born in Australia, Melbourne, Australia in 1960. That makes me pretty old. That makes me 60 years old this year. Mazel tov. Thank you. And so you decided to move to Israel, what, because you felt that you'd missed out? Because your parents went back from the kibbutzim? I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. But I remember at the time thinking, yeah? And once again, this is very subjective. But when I was a teenager, there was the Yom Kippur War. And I remember that very well. And I remember thinking, and once again, this is me personal. It doesn't, I'm not saying anyone else has to think this way. But I remember thinking that I was this young Jewish man growing up in Australia. And my, my family in Israel, they were going to the army and they were fighting and some of them were dying to protect Israel. And I thought that was fundamentally unfair. I thought these people are gonna decide if there's gonna be a Jewish state or not. And I'm just sitting back, I'm a bystander. I'm not doing my part. And I remember I felt that, that felt that very strongly. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to go to Israel. I thought it's important that I do my part as well. It's like saying, if I can use a metaphor, it's like there's this great Jewish drama going forward taking place in Israel, right? And if I stayed in Australia, I would be a spectator. I decided, no, I want to be part of the story. I want to have my input. I want to have my influence. I want to put my imprint also. And, and that's, that's why I decided to move to Israel. I think that's also part of what I got in the Jewish youth organization, just as I'm sure you have people, you talk about values, you talk about commitment to, to peoplehood and so forth and community and society. So I felt that very strongly. I thought it's not just about me, Right? It's about something larger. Though I have to be frank, if you'll allow me, Guy, that, I mean, Israel's been good to me. I mean, I came to Israel without any family. Uh, I didn't have, a, you know, parents who could open doors for me. I came as an, as an immigrant. And look where I am today. I'm the Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom, which is a pretty senior position, yeah? I think in many ways, Israel is a very strong meritocracy. If you've got talent, if you've got energy, if you've got brains, yeah, you can, and I see immigrants all across Israel, from different countries, from Britain, from America, from France, from Italy. I see, you see them all across Israel making an important uh, impact, a positive impact on Israel. I have a friend, a very close friend, lives in Tel Aviv, who grew up with me in Australia in the same neighborhood that I grew up in. And we both made Aliyah more or less together. He went a few months before me. And I went into the public service and became a diplomat and finally an ambassador, yes? And he spent his whole time, the last 20, 30 years, in the business side. And I sometimes think maybe he's done more for Israel than me. Why? Because Israel today is this economic powerhouse, right? Israel today is a high-tech epicenter. Israel is producing startups and new products, and, and the Israeli economy is very vibrant and exciting, yes? Maybe people like him have done more for the Jewish state than people like me. I don't know, sometimes. So, certainly not my place to judge. No. But while we're talking about 
I said, I wouldn't sell yourself short. You've made significant contributions, massive contributions to Israel as a diplomat. And so could you maybe describe the process of becoming a diplomat? So what did you study and what was always the plan? Was it always the plan or how, how do you end up in that position and at that point? So the answer is yes and no. <laughs> I, I, I was always interested in politics, always. Even at the age of 14, yeah, I was, I was always watching the news and we were discussing it around the table. And I remember you know, I went to a Jewish day school and I remember they didn't have political science as part of the final year in matriculation. What do you call it here? A-levels, yes? Yes. And so, and so I went to the local high school just to do political science one night, yeah, because I was always very, very political. But I actually became a diplomat by accident. I did a, a bachelor's degree in political science at Melbourne University in Australia. And then I did a master's degree in political science at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, which is a very good university. And then I was starting to do a doctorate, yes, which is another degree. And I had to sit down and write this thing. And I was very frustrated because I, I, I don't know, I had this mental block. I had this, I, I was, you know, having this, you know, I, I had to sit down and write what I needed to write and I couldn't get it, get it done. And my wife said, look here, here there's an ad in the, in the newspaper to, to do the entrance exam for the Israeli foreign ministry. And I said, oh, do I want to do that? She said, why don't they, you know, take the exam, you can decide later. So had I been a better academic, I might never have become a diplomat. I became a diplomat because I wasn't being successful at what I was doing at the time. <laughs> as in, as in, as you said, Israel's been good to you. So, may, uh, I mean, it's impossible to say what might have happened, but it's very interesting how things turn out. But when we're discussing you being an ambassador, and so at the moment you're ambassador of Israel in the UK, and there's, uh, I imagine it's a job that has its ups and downs. But do you think it would be easier to be an ambassador for a different country? even somewhere like Australia? So first of all, the big advantage for me in being ambassador here is I speak the language, though I have a different accent from you, yes, but, but, but I speak the language because I grew up in an English-speaking country. If I was the ambassador in Japan or in Germany, I'd have to learn a whole new language, yes, and, and even if I studied for a year, it wouldn't be at mother tongue level. So for me, a great advantage here is that I grew up with the English and therefore English is the working language in the United Kingdom. That's a great advantage. Also, I, I was always a bit of an Anglophile. Yes, I've always been reading books about Britain. I've always been interested in, in British history. You know, I remember, I think I must've been 21 when I read my first biography of Churchill. Yes, these are things that, are, so I came here and though I'd never lived here before, before I showed up here as ambassador, I'd maybe made one or two brief trips to Britain. I'd never lived here. But I felt at home, I felt I understood things because of having uh, read about and, and experienced Britain. Don't forget, I grew up in Australia and Australia was part of the Commonwealth. I remember in our classrooms at school, we had a picture of Queen Elizabeth, yes? Yeah. Uh, so we grew up with the same monarch. And so I think, so you've been here almost five years now. And so I think like as UK ambassador, so a few kind of little questions I'd like to ask you about that. So number one is, and have you enjoyed 
have you enjoyed your time in the UK? Is it what constitutes maybe a good day for you as ambassador and what constitutes a bad day? And then is there anything about Britain that has changed you? And will you take this back to Israel with you? So the great thing I like about living in Britain, and don't laugh, but it's the weather. Because in Israel, obviously the climate's warmer, yeah, much warmer. And I like to do sport. And in Israel, like in, in most months of the year, they say if you're doing sport, you either do it before eight o'clock in the morning or you do it after six, seven o'clock at night because it's, it's, they say it's not healthy to be about out in the middle of the day when the sun is shining. And the wonderful thing about being in Britain is you can do sport whenever you like. And that's an advantage. I mean, that's, that for me, that's the one, one big thing I like about living in Britain, yes? I also, there are other things about Britain that, that I think Israel could learn from. I think British people are a bit more polite than Israelis. Is, yes? Have you been to Israel, Guy? You know what I'm talking about? I, I have. I'm not commenting. I'm not commenting. <laughs> there are other things, though, that I think Israel could, you know, maybe Britain could learn some things from Israel, too. Israel is maybe better on thinking outside the box, or, uh, on uh, innovation. Some things Israel is, is, is good at, yes? But, but, but often, whenever you live in another country, you learn new things, you have new experiences. Um, What's a good day for me? A good day for me is when I get my job done. Yeah, when I, when I succeed in a goal that I've set to myself and a bad day is when I, I don't succeed. Uh, if I sit down with a member of parliament and I talk to him about Israel and I think I've convinced him of something that we're, you know, something right about Israel that he wasn't or she wasn't aware of before, that's a good day for me. So if we can just, uh, so we're going to go to the audience now for a few questions before a final few from me. So. Thank you so far for your very enlightening answers. So first, we're going to go to Abby Markovich from Redbridge, um, who's got a question to ask you. Hi, how do you best represent the welfare views and concerns of diaspora Jewry, particularly here in Britain, back to your colleagues in the Israeli government? And how much consideration of diaspora views are taken into account by policymakers? So, Abby, that's part of my job, right? I'm not only the ambassador of Israel to the United Kingdom, which means I work with the British government, right? I work with Parliament, I work with the Foreign Office, with Number 10 Downing Street, but I'm, I'm also the ambassador to the Jewish community. And it's my job to make sure that Israel knows what's going on here in the Jewish community and also, the, you know, what, what people are feeling here, what they're talking about. I mean, people were, last year when there was the whole big issue about anti-Semitism in Britain, everyone in Israel was always asking me, what's going on? How is this happening? And how are the Jewish community feeling about this? So in many ways, uh, let's say a Jewish leader rings me up or I meet them and, and we have a conversation and, and, and it's my job to, to report back to Israel, what are the feelings, what are the aspirations, what are the attitudes of British Jews? That's, that's, I get paid to report that back to Israel. And I do. I do. Thank you. Thank you, Abby. And now we have a question from a staff member, Jamie King. Hi. The Anglo-Jewish community prides itself on being one of the most united Jewish communities in the world, yet at the same time is a broad church of different levels of religiousness, political affiliations and outlooks. Against the backdrop of ever-growing anti-Israeli feelings in the wider society, coupled with a growth in anti-Semitism on our own doorsteps, what 
is the best way for British Jews to simultaneously be proud Zionists, but also critical friends of the government of the day in Israel? Thank you, Jamie. I, I would answer the following way. Just as you say, British Jews, you have people of different religious uh, uh, persuasions, uh, of different levels of, of, of commitment to, to the religion. You have people with different ideas, different politics, different attitudes on all sorts of issues. It's the same in Israel, correct? In Israel, you can find some people who want to spend their Shabbat on the beach and other people who say they want to spend their Shabbat in a synagogue, yes, and everything in between. That's Israel. And, and, and uh, you'll find Israelis of all different stripes, of different political positions, different religious positions, Israelis of different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, uh, my family, as I said before, my father was a German Jew, my wife's family are Syrian Jews. Um, and you can find you know, people from Ethiopia, people from Morocco, from all across. Uh, Israel is, is a very diverse society. Uh, uh, but what unites us is that we're all Israelis and we're a democracy. And, and if you ask me how out of British Jews, how should they feel about Israel, I think you can be proud of the fact yes, that in a very great landmass, um, if you think about the greater Middle East, yes, from Morocco in the west on the Atlantic shore, all the way through to Iraq in the east, uh, bordering on Central Asia, you've got maybe 30 countries in that part of the world. You've got hundreds of millions of people, and yet there's only one country in that whole landmass that really is a parliamentary democracy with a free press, a free trade union movement, where decisions are taken by voters in elections and they elect the government, where there's rule of law, independent courts. These are what you would call in this country, Jamie, they're British values, yes? Because, I mean, Britain is the homeland of the Magna Carta and the mother of parliaments is the parliament in Westminster. In many ways, you brought modern democracy to the world. And so when you look at British values and then you look at the Middle East, Israel, and we're not perfect, I know we're not perfect, but, but Israel represents those values. And so I think British Jews can be proud of that Israel in our 72 years history, yes? We are a proud and robust and vibrant democracy, even sometimes too democratic. You know, uh, Jamie, we had three elections in the last 12 months. This, is, this week, we finally got our, our government together. It took us a while, three elections, but this week we swore in a new government. And that ultimately, I think, is a good thing. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you, Jamie, for that. And so now can we go to Matthew Clayman, another staff member? Sorry, Matthew, you're on mute. There we go, I'm muted now. Um, so where the Board of Deputies spoke out against the leadership of the Labour Party in fear for the safety of the community, do you think that it should also have a view on the decisions of the Israeli government if it feels like some of the policies may endanger some of the safety of British Jews? So... I'm not going, it's not my job to tell the Board of Deputies what to do or what not to do. One of the strengths of the Board of Deputies, historically, it's been a consensus position of British jury. 
uh, and uh, different groups, like you've got Orthodox groups part of the uh, part of the Board of Deputies, and you've got the Progressive Jewish groups part of the Board of Deputies. And you've got groups that are more to the right and more to the left. It's an umbrella organization that represents all of British Jewry. And I think one of the strengths of the Board of Deputies has been that it's been a body that's based on consensus, that it has consensus positions. Uh, little organizations can have maybe more specific positions depending on their own orientation. But the board has always prided itself on being the, the, the umbrella body that represents all British Jews. Now, it, it, it pays into the, the previous question by Jamie. If you want to tell me all British Jews believe A, B, and C, right? I think it, it, to find consensus positions, I mean, we had elections in Israel. You have elections in Britain. All British Jews don't vote the same way. All Israeli Jews don't vote the same way, right? You get differences of opinion. And I think an overall representative body who wants to represent everyone has to find the common ground. And, and I think the board has been successful in doing that over the last few years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, now we would like to pass over to a Sergeant, Sidney Mittelman. Hi. Prior to coronavirus, everything was about Brexit. How does Brexit affect UK-Israel relations, as well as Israel's relationship with Europe? So I'm not sure I've got a good answer for you because I'm not sure I know the answer. There were some people who said that Israel has an interest in Britain staying in the EU because then we have a strong, friendly voice in the EU for Israel. Other people said that one out of 28 is not a lot and that it's better Yes, if, if for, for the Israel-UK relationship if, if Britain leaves the EU. So you didn't have, like, like British people argued the Brexit issue, in many ways Israelis argued it too because we, wasn't, we weren't sure what the right thing was. What we did say is we didn't have a public opinion. We didn't have a, a public position, I should say. It's not like Israelis told British people how they should vote. We said this is your decision and your choice. And when you decided that you wanted to leave the EU, uh, through that referendum in 2016. Well, we respect that. We respect that. And we've already signed a trade agreement between Israel and the United Kingdom because we used to trade on the basis of an Israel-EU trade agreement. But obviously, when you leave, that becomes superfluous. And it's important. And we were one of the first countries, I think, to sign a new trade agreement with the United Kingdom, which will kick into action the minute Brexit happens. Now, people don't know this, but Israel and the UK have a very strong and robust trading relationship. Israel's biggest trading partner on the planet is the United States of America. We sell and we buy more from America than with any other country. But number two is always a struggle between China and Britain. So sometimes Britain is our second largest trading partner on the planet, and sometimes it's the third. But Britain for us is a crucial trading partner. I'll tell you a story, and this is a bit about me being ambassador. Um, I'm very close with the Indian High Commissioner. That's the Indian ambassador in, in London. And she invited to me to their Yomatsmo, to the Indian Independence Day celebration. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
and she made a speech and she talked about how India UK trade had reached 20 billion pounds. And I'm in the corner and I heard her speech. And of course I clapped at the end of her speech, but I was thinking Israel, we're a much smaller country than India. We're smaller geographically. Israel is tiny, we're the size of Wales. And, and we're smaller demographically, we're 9 million people. How many hundreds of million of people are India? But we're 9 million pounds bilateral trade. We're almost half of India and we're not even a fraction of India in size. So we are boxing above our weight. The UK-Israel trade relationship is good. And I hope that, that in the years to come, it will continue to grow. Because when our two countries trade together, that makes greater prosperity both in Israel and in the United Kingdom. You should know also that it's not just in, in trade that we have a very good relationship between Israel and the UK. In defense and security, <clears throat> we also have a very good relationship. The end of last year, I was at an RAF base uh, in, in Northern England, where a bunch of Israeli Air Force pilots were doing joint exercises with RAF pilots. They were training together. Now, the Israeli Air Force is pretty good. I know I'm not objective, I'm Israeli, but they are pretty good. And the British Air Force, the RAF, is also pretty good. And guess what? When they train together and they learn from each other, they both get even better. That means the citizens of the United Kingdom and the citizens of Israel are better protected. That's a good thing. So through our relations, through the trade between Israel and the UK, the, the two countries are more prosperous. And through our defense cooperation, the peoples of both our two democracies are also safer. That's win-win. That's so thank you for that nugget of information. And now I'm going to put you on to Keely Price. Um, hi, thank you for coming on tonight. Um, today's Jewish young people were all born post the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. We don't have those cinematic experiences such as the Six Day War and the Yom Kippur War, which you mentioned how profoundly affected your life. We weren't around when Golda Mariah was there or on the raid of um, Entebbe. Uh, when the world saw Israel as David rather than Goliath, have we lost the PR war? And how can we not only win back the world, but also inspire the next generation to become proud Zionists in the truest sense of the word? So I, first of all, would say, even if you weren't there, you should learn your history because it's just like I wasn't there for my father's generation, but I made an effort to learn about it and see these books behind me. I've made an effort to read a lot of them because, uh, because it's important to know where you came from. And so even if you were born after uh, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated, you should learn about that period and you should learn about periods before. It's very important because you only if you know where you came from can you know where you're going. I'm not saying one has to be obsessed about the past. But one has to know where one comes from. One has to learn from historic experience. And that's, that's, that's very, very important. You ask, what can, what can young people like yourself be, be, be proud of about Israel? Uh, I think you can be proud of the fact that Israel is a success story, that Israel is a free country, that Israel is a tolerant country, that Israel is a successful, as I said, a, success, a successful country. If you think about it, uh, we celebrated uh, just a few weeks ago Israel's 
72nd Independence Day. Now, when Israel was established, many people thought Israel didn't have a chance. Many people thought Israel would be overrun. Many people thought that Israel would be destroyed by its neighbors. And it's true when David Ben-Gurion declared independence. That's that night in 1948, the Egyptian Air Force already bombed Tel Aviv. And the next day, the neighboring countries invaded. Many people thought Israel would be outnumbered, outgunned, and would be destroyed. But not only has Israel survived, Israel has flourished. Israel has succeeded amazingly. We spoke about the Israeli economy before. Israel today is a strong country. Israel is a free country. Even if you go to Netflix, and I'm sure some of you do, how many Israeli series, how many Israeli films do you see on Netflix today that they're not just Jewish people watch, everyone watches. Israel is a cultural powerhouse. We're producing film, we're producing cinema, we're producing television, we're producing music. Uh, Israel is producing technology that is that is changing the world in a better way. I, I, I saw for myself once in Africa, in these arid regions where people die because there's not enough water. So Israel is producing equipment that uses solar panels to drill into the ground to get water so people can, have, uh, can live a, a better life to in, in improve their quality of life. Israel is doing amazing things in medicine. Do you know, uh, it's quite possible that Israel will help humanity also on the coronavirus business because in Israel there's pioneering research on vaccines, on antibodies. There's pioneering research on, on, on medicines for people who get the disease. Even on issues like ventilators. Israel, we, we're a group that used to be connected to the military that makes uh, uh, usually defense equipment started to make ventilators cheaper, more efficient. We're doing things that are affecting humanity. I think you could be proud of that as well. And on the larger political issue, which you eroded to, Israel today is talking to more Arab countries than ever before. Uh, Israel has today more partnerships in the Arab world than ever before. If in the past, most of the Arab world was hostile to Israel, that's no longer the case. We are talking to more Arab governments than ever before in the history of Israel. It's a wonderful thing. In the past in Israel, when we wanted, when we wanted to talk to friends, we talked to people in Britain, people in Europe, people in North America. Now we have partners in the region. Our Arabs that used to see us as their enemy today want to have a good relationship with Israel. It's a, it's a huge change. It's a revolutionary change. It, and, and ultimately, our relations with the Arab countries will help us with the Palestinians because the Palestinians say they're proud members of the Arab world. And when the Arab world is more open to Israel, that will affect our dialogue with the Palestinians too. So I'm, I'm optimistic. And, and if I can say this, if, if, if I'm optimistic about the politics, because ultimately I see Israel, as I said, becoming more integrated into the region, more accepted into the region, with more and more friends in the region, and I'm upbeat about the economics, which is Israel's economy with its high-tech infrastructure. Israel is almost uniquely positioned to succeed in the 21st century, which is an information century. It is a technological century. So Israel is doing well on the economics. Israel is doing well on the politics. It's, for sure, we've got challenges. I don't in any way um, under, uh, want to belittle the challenges. There are some very serious challenges. But on the whole, I'm very optimistic and upbeat about Israel's future, and I think you can be too. Great. Thank you for that. And now uh, putting you on to Hannah Globe. 
Hi, as a student in Australia studying at Melbourne University, I believe you took an active part in the Jewish Student Society. How would you find it being a student on campus in the UK today and what support would you be asking for yourself as ambassador? So Hannah, you did your homework because how did you know that? I was the president of the Jewish Student Society at Melbourne University in Australia. That must have been in 1980. That's a long, long time ago, but I remember it well. And even then, there were groups who were very, very hostile to Israel. It, a lot of it, I thought, was it came from the very, very far extreme left, yes? Uh, that was before Islamism. Islamism only took off later uh, uh, in the 1990s, uh, I think. But uh, there was hostility to Israel then, and I remember organizing as, as the head of the JSOC, uh, all sorts of activities to stand up for Israel and to explain Israel's positions and so forth. So some things don't change a lot, others do, um, uh, that's for sure. I would though be very, very hesitant to give advice to someone who's on a British campus today because what I, what I went through in Australia all those years ago when I was running our JSOC, I'm not sure it's all totally relevant to what you have to do today, but I do know this. If you're involved in your JSOC, if you're a leader of your JSOC, that's a, that's a major mitzvah, that's a good thing, because you're providing a framework for Jewish students on campus at university to find a home, to find a place, to find, to find identity, and that's very, very important. Thank you. Thank and you. Pretty, thanks, and now we're putting you on to Brandon. When you order shawarma, do you prefer shawarma in pita bread or shawarma in laffa? A very good question. I tell you what, one of my problems is, uh, uh, and I don't know how to get over this, but when I order shawarma, the big question is, how do I eat it without it falling apart, right? And I've decided if I order it in laffa and not in pita, there's less of a chance of me making a huge mess. Though I have to tell you, if I'm dressed for work, like now with a, a, a tie and a, a jacket, I will always take a plate, even with a plastic knife and fork and eat it, because otherwise I can make a mess. What is your preference, Adam? Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably uh, in pita bread. In pita bread. Well, these are one of the things, you know, it's like saying, what's your favorite color? There's no right answer. There's no right answer. It all depends on what people like. I like the laffa because I think it sort of hugs the food better. But once again, other people have different opinions. What I can say to you, and here I'm not objective, hello, I think in Israel we have really good food. Israelis eat, I think, more healthy than a lot of people. You have all those salads that people eat in Israel. You have all those fresh cheeses and, 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 and vegetables. And I think the diet in Israel is more healthy than in many countries. Very important. Thank you. Thank you. And standing right next to him is Adam. Sorry, Adam, I got the name mixed up. That's fine. Brandon's now very hungry, so <laughs> I know what he's going to ask me for now. Um, first of all, Ambassador, on behalf of JLGB, thank you so much um, for being involved in our prestigious evenings. We've been doing this now for eight weeks. We are so inspired by you, the amazing work that you do for indeed everyone. And we're, we're, we're so grateful um, that you can be part of this with us. And, and thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Um, I have two 
questions, a two-part question, if I may. The number of British Jews who have died, as well as other ethnic minority groups, seem to be disproportionately high. Has, Isra has Israeli research been looking at this? And secondly, what was it about the way Israel reacted to the coronavirus and lockdown that seems to be so effective compared to the death tolls of other countries? So first of all, Adam, I, I thank you uh, for your kind words and for having me here today. You do know that I have a personal relationship uh, with your organization because I'm a friend of your president, Lord Levy. I and he's for years, ever since I've come in, I came to London four years ago as ambassador, he's been talking to me about uh, uh, JLBG. And it, it's my pleasure to, to do this with you. I'm glad we found the, the right way, the Thank right you. way to do it. Can I now answer your question? Look, in Israel, we've kept the number low, and I'll, I'll share with you an interesting statistic that I'm not sure I can explain, but I know it to be true. Israel has a population of 9 million, and we've had maybe, I think the numbers, it's about 270, 280 deaths. The British Jewish community, which is much, much smaller than Israel, uh, it's maybe 280,000 people, uh, has had more deaths. And how does one explain that? How does one explain that 9 million Israelis have had less deaths than a small community? And it's the same with the French Jewish community also. Disproportionately high fatalities from the disease. And I'm not sure I have all the answers. I think it's possible that in Israel, the government was well ahead of the curve. Is it possible because in Israel, we're used to having a crisis, yes, that our government is used to, to, to dealing with crises because of the national security threats that our infrastructure as a country, as a decision-making process, was a bit more ready to deal with this crisis than in other countries. <clears throat> you know that like some of the governments in East Asia, because of SARS five, 10 years ago, maybe they were a little more on the ball with this disease at the beginning also. So maybe Israel had an advantage there. Maybe it's also an advantage being a smaller country. Because if you're a big country, yes, if you're Germany or, or Britain, and you want to change course. So it's like a big ocean liner. You turn and you do this slow arc. Yes, it takes you a while to turn. If you're a small country like Israel, it's like you're a speedboat and you can flip very quickly. You can turn very quickly. And maybe that gave us advantages in dealing with the crisis because we could turn quicker because we're smaller. Remember, Israel only has one major international airport and our borders with our neighboring countries don't have the same sort of traffic, let's say, that some of the European countries have on their land borders. There's no doubt that we have been efficient in Israel, keeping our death rate very low, uh, and that's a good thing. We're talking now in Israel about opening up, opening up schools again and opening up workplaces, but we're doing so, I think, very carefully, judiciously, in a very measured way, because we don't want the disease to come back. And let's be frank, it's not like we all had a file of what to do when coronavirus hits. All of us, Israelis, Brits, Americans, we've all been learning on the job. There is no textbook solutions here. And, and maybe this gave Israel a certain advantage as well because we're pretty good in Israel of improvisation and of innovation. And, and, and I think it is to our credit and to the credit of the government that we have managed to keep the fertilities, fatalities 
relatively low. It's, it's important. Thank you very much and thank you for your insight and from all the volunteers in JLGB, it really is an inspirational and fantastic evening. Back to Guy. Right, so next we've got Eris, who wants to ask you a question. Do you get to have a work-life balance? Do you have time to relax? You mentioned support, but do you watch TV such as Netflix or even have a favourite musical? So the truth is I'm not a big TV person. Um, I took a decision a few years and you'll laugh, but I took a decision a few years ago that if I cut down TV, I have more time for other things. And then when I arrived here in the United Kingdom as ambassador, I suddenly discovered that every, almost every night of the week, there's an event that I have to go to. Either, either a Jewish care is having their dinner or, uh, or uh, uh, a synagogue has invited me to speak or the Indian ambassador's got her reception for Indian National Day, and, and, and my calendar would, would fill up. And so since arriving in the United Kingdom, I have not been watching a lot of television. Though now, because my evenings are free because of coronavirus, I've actually probably been watching more television in the last two months than I did in my last two years here in the United Kingdom. I think television is good. As you know, on Netflix, there's a lot of good stuff, a lot of Israeli stuff as well, yes? Some really good Israeli dramas like Fowder and stuff, I'm sure you're familiar with. But I think it's a mistake to watch too much television. I'm old fashioned that way. I believe in reading, I believe in books. I think it's important to find the right balance. So just to clarify, you don't have a favorite musical? A favorite what? Musical. Like musical movie? Um, anything. Uh, musical theatre, musical movie. So I have to tell you, I'm of the generation, and maybe some of your parents are, I grew up with the Rolling Stones. I've always had a soft spot for the Rolling Stones. Like if I'm washing the dishes, yes, and I'm not listening to the news, and often I'll listen to the news because I'm a news junkie. But if I'm listening to music, I will listen to the Rolling Stones. And I have to tell you, that I went to hear them play. They played in Tel Aviv a few years ago and I went to hear them then. And while I was here in Britain and they did that tour of London, what was it, two, three years ago? I heard them play in London and I very much enjoyed both concerts. All right. So next uh, we're going to pass you on to Aviva Sandler. Hi. Um, I've read a lot of stories about the Israeli government supporting Palestinians to prevent coronavirus, including uh, providing test kits to Gaza. But can you tell us more about this, how saving human life regardless of conflict takes priority? And if you think that this support will help future relations? So the truth is you're right. We have been working very closely with the Palestinians to make sure that they are better capable of dealing with coronavirus. And the truth is, it's been successful. And uh, I think you've had zero deaths in Gaza, zero. And in West Bank, it's something like six or under six uh, fatalities from coronavirus, which is, is good, it's, it's very good statistics. The first cases of coronavirus amongst the Palestinians were in Bethlehem, Apparently, pilgrims from Europe bought the disease, but then the Palestinian government closed off Bethlehem. They did this huge curfew of the city, 
and uh, they were effective and we were very helpful, as you said, with testing equipment, with other medical equipment, with medicines and so forth. We supported them, they supported themselves. And, and once again, we've been very effective working together to limit the, the, the scope and the spread of the virus. Now your question, which is a good one, can we learn from this? And I hope we can, because if Israelis and Palestinians can do a good job in fighting coronavirus together, maybe we should learn that we can work together better on all sorts of other issues, whether it's in farming, whether it's in trade, whether it's in other medical areas, whether it's in fighting pollution. In other words, we have so much to gain from having better relations. We have so much to gain from working together. We have so much to gain from cooperating instead of fighting each other. And I hope that we can learn from this. Israel is ready to cooperate with the Palestinians on all sorts of issues that can be beneficial to them and beneficial to us. We hope that their leadership will put aside confrontation and let's work for a bit of collaboration, for cooperation. That's good for everyone. Thank you very much. And so now for the penultimate question, we're putting you on to Simone. Hi. Um, so Israel is known for its scientific and medical breakthroughs. All governments across the world are backing their scientists to find a cure or vaccine for coronavirus. How close is Israel to finding a vaccine? So I know we're close, but unless you're there, you're not there. And there's been some research going on in Israel specifically with antibodies. And they think they're very close to finding solutions. But once again, you're not there until you're there. There's another group of people in Israel who've been looking at, um, at medicine for people who've got the disease. In other words, getting a vaccine, that's all about prevention. And then there's other people who are working on if people have the disease, if they're sick with coronavirus, how can you treat it in a way that you save their lives, that you limit the, the, the negative symptoms of the disease? A third group was looking at respirators and how you can produce them, as I said before, more cheaply and more efficiently and quickly and so forth. And, and I think it's quite possible that, that in Israel, we will maybe not provide all the answers, but we'll be able to provide some of the answers because as you said in your question, Israel has been at the head of so much technological development over the last 10, 20 years. Uh, I remember a few years ago, there was a company up north in a city called Yoknia, who developed a, cap, a capsule, uh, like a big tablet that people would take. And it had this microscopic camera in it. And as the, 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 the tablet, the, the capsule went down through your system, it would take pictures inside. Now you think, oh, that's really funny. But the truth is, a lot of people, when they get to my age and even older, you need to take pictures inside for, to detect diseases. And often people would have to do surgery and it would be very, very dangerous surgery, uncomfortable surgery. Uh, for older people, sometimes that sort of surgery can, can even have a risk to it, yes. Uh, and suddenly we in Israel developed a camera that would come in like a tablet and allow you to take pictures. And that's the sort of thing that's the sort of medical technology that Israel has been producing and that is, is good for Israel, but it's good for everyone because these, this technology is good for all of, all of humanity. And so just as we can produce that sort of medical uh, device, we can hopefully also help find solutions to coronavirus. Do you know already today, 
one in seven medicines prescribed through the NHS is an Israeli pharmaceutical because we are quite good on pharmaceutical development in Israel and the British health system likes Israeli products. How about that? Israel, a small country like Israel, nine million people, produces one in seven medicines that are prescribed through the NHS. I think that's an amazing statistic, something that we can all be proud of. And thank you for that. So for our final question from the audience, I'd like to put you on to Sasha Johnson. Good evening, Ambassador. Uh, thank you again on behalf of everyone uh, for, for your time. Thanks for joining us. Um, my question is, uh, I'm a, a JLGB volunteer and one of the many JLGB volunteers that have been uh, and continues to be involved with the planning and preparation for our 125th anniversary summer camp this summer. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but we, uh, we're celebrating our 125th anniversary and we're expecting more than 500 uh, British uh, young people from around the UK to join us at our campsite uh, in Essex. We're also um, hopefully expecting 160 Israeli young people to come over and join us uh, as, uh, as they do every year. Um, I also um, happen to be a, a three-time birthright madrich and am due to lead my, first, uh, my fourth sorry, birthright trip at the end of August with a, a group of British participants. My question to you is, what's the likelihood of the uh, 160 Israeli participants we're expecting on our summer camp coming over, and what's the likelihood of me being able to go to Israel at the end of August to, to lead Birthright again? So Sasha, first of all, I want to congratulate you and everyone on your anniversary. What is it? You said 125 years? That's quite an achievement. Yeah. That's, quite, that's quite an achievement, and well done, and that's, that's really something to be proud of. Vis-a-vis -vis what would happen in summer, well, the truth is, I don't think anyone can answer that question because, as I said, while policy is to slowly open up, uh, but to do so carefully and to make sure that as we open up and return to normal that we don't have a return of this terrible virus. So, I mean, to be frank, are you even 100% sure you're going to be able to have your camp this summer? Because I think no one can answer that question. I hope you can. I pray that you can. Uh, will there be regular flights between Israel and the UK this, by this summer? I hope so, uh, but I'm not sure yet. It all depends what happens with this virus. Um, I know uh, every year we have the tours that you also organize, the tours of Israel where young people come and see Israel. Many of them come and see Israel for the first time, and it's, they've had to be canceled this summer. So I can't answer your question because as much as as, as I want to see Israelis at your camp, as much as I want to see you having this fantastic camp, I know you do it every year, and this year, as you say, an anniversary year, a special year, but health and safety has to come first. Look, if the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom is telling Jewish people not to go to synagogue, right? We know it's serious. We know it's serious. When a rabbi tells you not to go to synagogue, that's not a usual thing, correct? So it's the same with our camps. I want to see the Israelis come. I want to see you have your successful camp. But ultimately, it has to be a function of the health and safety of all the people who would be attending. And I don't think we can compromise on that. So I, I hope and pray that you can have that camp and that the 160 Israelis will be there. But I can't promise it to you. I don't think anyone can.
that would be irresponsible. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much for answering all those questions. So we've still got enough time, and if it's okay with you, I've still got uh, four or five questions left just to ask you. Is that okay with you? That's fine. Go ahead. Uh, brilliant. So the first question that actually leads on quite nicely. So the question covers obviously that the rite of passage and the fact that Israel tours that, as you've touched on, loads of under 16-year-olds 16, 16 are going on Israel tours, and that because of coronavirus, thousands won't be able to experience that magical three-week adventure. So I think one, what impact do you think that will have on this generation? And how, would you, and how do you think this should be supplemented, that, this missed connection with Israel? So I've, I've already been talking about this issue, this issue with uh, people in the community, because uh, as you know, as you know better than most, that it's, it's, it's become a tradition that people, what is it, after 10th year, they go to Israel for a few weeks over the summer. And this year, that's not possible. And so I think we have to, we have to think creatively how to compensate those people who couldn't go this year after, uh, uh, during the summer break. And maybe they should get a chance to go on a different occasion. In other words, that they missed out this time doesn't mean that they have to miss out permanently and we have to think about how that can be done. And uh, I'm sure there will be very serious conversations between the Jewish community here, the Jewish agency, the Israeli government. <clears throat> how can we make sure that those people who would normally have gone to Israel this summer do not miss out permanently? And so, again, if we can then move on from this to something a bit more, talking about your cultural responsibilities as Israeli ambassador, we're currently in Ramadan, and last year you intended a big iftar event. So how important is British-Muslim relations and social cohesion been to you during your time here in the UK? So not only have I attended an iftar, I hosted, hosted yeah. We had an iftar here at the residence of the Israeli ambassador, and we invited members of the British-Muslim community, and we had a very nice event. And, I'll, uh, uh, and we talked about the history of Jewish-Muslim relations, and you know the, what the truth is, anyone who knows their Jewish history knows the following, that if you had a choice in the Middle Ages, let's say in the 1600s or the 1700s, to be a Jew in the Muslim Middle East or in Christian Europe, it would probably have been better to be a Jew in the Muslim Middle East because it was probably more tolerant and you're, you're probably safer. Now, maybe that's not true today, but we should never forget the long history that uh, Jews and Muslims share, and that there's no reason uh, that we should accept the, the diatribes of those who say there has to be hate between us. There, sh there shouldn't be hate between us. We should work together, and that's why I hosted a niftar. And even now, and I'll tell you what happened with the coronavirus crisis in Israel, because obviously about 20% of Israel's population are Muslim, a bit less, and, and they're celebrating Ramadan. And we're, we're asking them not to do the big iftar dinners and to socially distance. And so instead of saying to them, oh, you can't do A, B, and C, Prime Minister Netanyahu, I thought, gave a very interesting message. He said to the Muslim community, he said, just as we over Passover, over Pesach, we asked people not to get together, not to have grandma and grandpa, not to have extended families, but to only celebrate Passover with the people you live in, in your house in your flat. 
just as we did that, we're asking you as a Muslim community to do the same with the Ramadan, with Iftar, because this is about saving life. And we have to respect that everyone has their faith and traditions, and we have to, in the framework of their faith and traditions, ask people to be responsible and not to do anything that is going to help this disease spread. And thank you. And that's a very, obviously a very important, and you clearly reflect this importance for cohesion between the two communities. If we can move on then to focusing on young British Jews, um, obviously post-coronavirus and post-quarantine and all that, Israel is referred to as the startup nation. So is now a good time to make Aliyah and make a life in Israel for young British Jews? It's always a good time to make Aliyah. <laughs> I, 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 obviously, Britain's a great country, yes? But I always think that Israel uh, is a, a place where, where young people can really make a difference, where people can, can move ahead, um, a meritocracy, as I said before. I see so many immigrants in Israel who've made a success of themselves and made an amazing contribution uh, to Israeli society, to the Israeli economy, to Israeli culture. You see immigrants across Israel, all making a difference. In fact, the truth is, if you walk down the street in Israel and you see all these Israeli speaking Hebrew and you think, oh, they must be here for generations. A lot of them were born abroad or their parents were born abroad or their grandparents. It's a country of immigrants, correct? And, and, and uh, it's a country that is the homeland, not just for the people who live in it, but it's the homeland of all the Jewish people. And, and I say to you, uh, as a diaspora Jew, as a proud British Jew guy, I say to you the following. You have the right to live wherever you want in freedom and in security. And if you choose to be a, a, a Jew in Britain, that is your right, and you have the right to do so, and you should be able to do that in freedom and security and never have to apologize for being Jewish. But you also have another right that was denied you for many, many years. And that is, if you want to, if you choose to, you can go and live in Israel because Israel was created for all the Jewish people. And if you choose to exercise that right, we as a country will accept you as a returning brother and or sister. And that is our commitment. And maybe that's going back to the beginning of our conversation when I said to you that what it was like for Jewish people before there was an Israel. Israel has made a real important change in the life of the Jewish people. And it's, from my perspective, important that we protect Israel, that we keep Israel strong, that we make sure that Israel is doing the right things. And I know that immigrants from countries like Britain can really, really make a positive contribution if they want to. Thank, thank you for that. And I think that, that will especially be a very inspiring message for many of the young British Jews that are watching this online and be watching this in the future. And you, you may have even tweaked my own personal opinions about making Aliyah. The, and so my penultimate question, as we draw to a close, what gives you, Ambassador, what gives you hope? And kind of what positives, if, if there are any, do you think will come out of this time that we are currently living in? I think the good, I mean, obviously, coronavirus has been terrible. I mean, people have, have died. Other people have been very sick. The economy has gone into recession. Uh, a lot of people 
are losing money. Some people are, can't afford to support themselves. Yes, it's, it's terrible. But like in every crisis, maybe it's a chance to rethink priorities, to look at what is really important. Um, and, and hopefully it's a time to, to contemplate. Uh, and, 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 and so we come out of this stronger. Uh, like I said before, uh, we've been cooperating with the Palestinians. Can we use this example of working together to fight the disease as a positive example of what we can do on other issues too? Can we learn from this uh, and, and so forth? I think that's very, very important. I think also, I think Israelis, uh, Israelis are very self-critical. Yes, Israelis are not, don't go around praising the government. Israelis are always saying things could be better. I think there's an understanding now amongst the Israeli population when we look at how we dealt with this crisis and we compare it to other countries, that you know, there's a sense, oh, maybe we are doing some things well in Israel. Maybe, maybe we have got it right on some very, very important issues. Um, and, and finally, as I said before, I'm very, I'm an optimist. And I think I'm, I'm a logical optimist. I'm not a naive person. I don't, I don't I'm not like the ostrich who puts his head in the sand and ignores the threats. There are very real threats out there. Uh, there's, we've got the problem of Hamas in Gaza and Hezbollah in Lebanon, and the Iranians are up to no good, and we know that, yes. They're a serious threat to Israel. And, and there are many reasons why our young people have to still do compulsory military service to protect Israel, because there are very real threats. And to ignore the threats is like the proverbial ostrich is to, to ignore the reality. But there's so much to be optimistic for. I spoke before briefly about those new relations with the Arab countries, Arab countries who never used to talk to us. They used to see us as an enemy today, look upon Israel as a friend, as an ally, as a partner. I'm not talking about one or two Arab countries, I'm, I'm talking about across the Middle East, where Arab countries are reevaluating their previous attitudes to Israel and now looking at Israel in a much more positive way. And the Israeli economy, as one of your questioners said to me, the high tech, the, the, the innovation, the, the technological development. Israel is a powerhouse for conceptual products, for ideas every day, not every day, I'm exaggerating, but every day almost you read in the newspapers about an Israeli startup that was brought by a big American company for, for billions of dollars because they have a product that Google wanted to buy or Intel wanted to buy. And in the 21st century, as I said before, which is a, cent a century for technology, a century for innovation. Israel is perfectly positioned to succeed. And then if I look at where the Jewish people were just 75 years ago and where we are today, can I, can I not have confidence that in the next 75 years that we will continue to succeed and continuing to thrive? If you look at the revolutions of the, of the, of the 20th century, yeah, the Russian revolution, other revolutions, in many ways, the Zionist revolution has to be considered one of the most successful. And the cherry on the ice cream is that Israel has produced a democracy, a free society, a society based on the rule of law, a, a, a democratic society that stands out in a region which unfortunately where freedom and democracy is not the norm, a region where Unfortunately, the norm is different forms of autocracy, and yet in Israel, it's the ballot box and the courtroom and the rule of law that dominates. Can we not be proud of all that? So for all those reasons, 
I am optimistic about the future of the State of Israel, and I hope you are too. Thank you very much, Ambassador, and thank you for all your contributions that you've made tonight. I, I have one final question, which is which we always ask our guests. And so my, my final question is, we always ask our guests to nominate and ask another public figure, celebrity or community leader, to be a future guest on our program and help us delight, inform and entertain all the children and young people stuck at home. And so if you've enjoyed tonight's experience, which I hope you have, yeah. is there anyone you think you could now persuade? And I think the most important question on everyone's lips is, do you know Gal Gadot? So the truth is, I went to see Wonder Woman and I thought she was amazing because we knew her in Israel as a model, but she's a great actress too. She is amazing. And you know, for a while, she was living here in the United Kingdom. I can say that now because she's left, but, but, but she was doing uh, uh, some professional work here. She is a national asset. I don't have the sort of connection with her that I think I can get her to be here uh, instead of me next week. I apologize, but I will think if you like about which, who we could get here. But you know, you have your president. Have you ever thought of asking your president to come and talk? He has a few stories to tell, uh, Lord Michael Levy. You could ask him to come. He'd be very good. I think we'll try and get a book then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Ambassador, honestly, for all of the questions that you so patiently and accurately answered. And I think every single person that sat here has had such an insightful and enlightening experience as a result of it. So if you'd said to me seven weeks ago that I'd be hosting a youth program interviewing the ambassador of the state of Israel to the UK, broadcasting live to thousands of people, quite frankly, I think it was a Purim spiel. But so times are hard for all of those ages right now. But the fact that you have given your time this evening to listen to all of us and answer the questions, and in some cases, very challenging questions, it's, it's so admirable. From our founder 125 years ago, Colonel Albert E.W. Goldsmith, and his close relationship with Theodore Herzl, and to Chaim Weizmann being a vice president of the JLGB, over 50 years of JLGB groups visiting Israel, all the way to, through to thousands of Israeli teenagers experiencing our summer camps each year, to the pinnacle of our living and breathing connection to Israel through our Shinshinim each year, JLGB is extremely proud of all of its connections to Israel. So on behalf of JLGP's president, Lord Levy, our trustees, staff, volunteers, and of course, all of us young people, we're very thankful for your service to the Jewish community. And we're delightful to add this occasion to that long list of special moments in the bond of JLGB and Israel. Thank you, Your Excellency. Be well, and we hope to see you soon. So Guy, can I thank you for interviewing me? I thank all of you for having me. And I just want to say, keep on doing what you have been doing. You're a fantastic organization. You're making a real difference. And I'm sure that people who are part of this program today will be making a significant influence on this planet in the life of humanity and the Jewish people in the years to come. Keep on doing it. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. And that's it. Thank you to everyone for tuning in this evening and yet again being part of history. Thank you so much for listening to Jersey Virtual. We are live. Take care of yourselves and stay safe and we shall see you again soon.